It is the 200 level episode 101, Feliz Navidad. I texted Trevor yesterday when that game was about to wrap up. It was 74 to 68. House of Pain, Carmen's Crew. I still don't know what the meaning of Carmen's Crew is, but no need to look it up now. They're out of the tournament. And I texted him, Feliz Navidad. If this game ends in favor of House of Pain, that's what this episode is going to be titled. So that's what it is. Feliz Navidad. I have not had that much fun watching sports. And I guess that goes without saying because there haven't been many sports on. But I've not had that much fun watching a game since March 8th, Illinois, Iowa. And certainly the stakes not quite as high, though you could argue that you got a million dollars on the table here. So everyone on that bench stands to win $120,000. So that's pretty remarkable. But I'm thinking about how I felt during that game yesterday and how these profanity-laced tirades were going through my mind. I've chilled out over the years, but there's no doubt that when I see Diebler hit two threes within the span of 10 seconds to, I think, take an 11-point lead for House of Pain down to five, just like that. When I see Aaron Craft, Buford, Whitey, guys that seem to play at Ohio State for about a decade, yeah, it got the old juices flowing again, and that felt good. And I know for Illini fans, that was a cathartic thing, and I'm guessing for Ohio State fans, probably not quite as much, even though I'm sure they enjoyed seeing their guys play basketball. But I'd be lying if I said that I would not have been disappointed if the House of Pain didn't win that game. Like, let's say for whatever reason that score set at 76 and Carmen's crew goes on a run. And then I'm thinking, damn, I won't get to watch a game on Friday. Well, now we do. We have a game to look forward to tomorrow or whenever you're listening to this. That'd be Friday at three o'clock, another matinee, this time with House of Pain versus Red Scare. So it was fun. We'll get to that. Plenty of other stuff because I'm going to start good news with the basketball tournament before we get into college sports and the tenuous position that they're in. And that story seems to be constantly evolving and evolving very quickly. So we'll get to that as well. But before we do, a reminder, the 200 level is brought to you by DP Doe online at dpdoe.com for all the best deals and prices, dpdoe.com. You can get a custom zone, any topping you want. You can get one of their favorites. May I suggest the buffer zone. You get dipping sauce. You can get a cookie. You can get a drink. Lots of other good stuff all online at dpdoe.com. And best of all, they deliver anywhere in Champaign-Urbana, so you can stay at home, stay cool. They will bring you a piping hot calzone. dpdo.com. Fourth and Kirby, online at fourthandkirby.com. Buy two shirts, get one free. So in these hot summer months, no better place to get vintage-inspired Illini apparel. Fourthandkirby.com. And on top of that, you can use coupon code 200LEVEL or the 200LEVEL to get 10% off your order. That's dpdo.com. And finally, State Farm agent Brian Hansen online at brianismyguy.com. Life, auto, home, business, renters, you name it, they got it. And best of all, if you are in the East Central Illinois area, we're talking about local products, people with your local interest at heart. So not just insurance experts, they are that, but they're also from the area. That counts for something, and you can trust them. I've known Brian for quite a while, and when it comes to insurance, you need to be able to trust the person that you're talking to, and you can at brianismyguy.com. Also, Alana Inquirer and the Champagne Showers Podcast Network partners with the 200 level as we enter our second set of 100 episodes, episode 101, which should be a fun episode. And later on, this is what's really exciting. We have, of course the basketball tournament to talk about. I keep on wanting to say throwback tournament, TBT, because all these guys are throwbacks to yesteryear. 
But we also have a conversation coming up that I'm really excited for you to listen to with Sheldon Jacobson. Who is Sheldon Jacobson? He is a professor at the University of Illinois, founder professor, I should say, in computer science, also the director of Bedtime Research Institute, the director of Simulation and Optimization Laboratory. I will say this unequivocally. He is the smartest person we've had on the 200 level. And there's a long, a long gap between him, or a wide gap, I should say, between him and whoever the second smartest would be. But on top of that, you think, Professor, well, maybe that's going to be kind of a, a dry conversation. Uh, great personality, fun individual to talk to who knows his stuff and is able to deliver that information in a digestible way. And that can be the tricky thing when you get into scientific sort of data, analytics, evidence-based research, all that that the messenger is important. He's a good messenger for this. And we talk about his study that came out last week about if college football were to be played, you were looking at three to seven deaths among those players. That's about 13,000 players in the FBS and a 30 to 50% infection rate. So that's the start. But there is so much more nuance in this conversation, including what I found to be a bit of a surprising conclusion all these findings, and he has an idea about what maybe we should be doing in this time. So uh, Sheldon Jacobson on Twitter, I'd recommend you follow him at SHJ Analytics because he will be continuing to conduct this research. We'll get into the general story about college sports in the COVID-19 pandemic in a bit because that is the overriding story in sports right now, not to mention Major League Baseball and the NBA, even though it seems like both of those leagues are full steam ahead. And it will just be a matter of certain athletes saying, you know what, I'm not into it, including maybe Mike Trout. That seems to be trending that direction. Think about that. Joe Madden goes over the Angels, and his first year, he doesn't even have Mike Trout on his bench. He's got a pregnant wife. He's got bigger fish to fry than a 60-game Major League Baseball season. And let's be honest, the Angels, they won't make the playoffs anyways. It's <laughs> They are the perpetual 85-win team. They're kind of like the White Sox from the 2006 to 2013 of the AL West. They're fine. They'll be okay, but yeah, they aren't a threat. And I feel bad for Mike Trout professionally, but I also think that if he happens to say, I'm not into this, I'm setting it out, that sends a pretty big message. Before we get into all that, though, the good news, the basketball tournament. So I was not able to see a ton of that game on the 4th live. We had a few people over outside and we're hanging out, and the day just kind of goes, and before you know it, it's 7.30, and I'm thinking, okay, well, good thing I had this recorded so I can watch this later, and that's what I did on Sunday morning before talking with Harry and Trevor, and it was fun, and they dominated, no pun intended. Of course, Mike Dom is a stud, and we'll probably get a cup of coffee in the NBA pretty soon, but it was enjoyable. This was different yesterday, though. Watching Sports Live is a whole different ballgame for me, and I know Lon, for example, has gotten into the habit of being able to record games and go back and watch them at any time and still get basically the same level of enjoyment. But I would not be able to avoid Twitter or texting friends. I need to watch it live to get that full impact. And I got that yesterday. Going into halftime, thinking, well, you know, they were within striking distance, but also realizing that the House of Pain had an 11-point lead, and then very quickly that evaporated against the defending champions. Carmen's crew, it's amazing that I I knew everyone on that team, except for the dime guy. I'm not really sure where he came from, but every other name, including Dimitri McKamey, go figure, Ohio State Buckeyes players that, again, seemed to play there for about a decade. It was just part of that Thad Mata era when Illinois was just floundering 
in mediocrity. Ohio State was excelling. One of the more frustrating times as a Illini basketball fan because you know what could have been if you had gotten a Thad Mata. You would have been putting Carmen's crew out there. And as much fun as yesterday's game was, I couldn't help but be reminded uh, throughout the entire thing that, oh man, we could have had this. We could have had this decade plus worth of success that Thad Mata had. Regardless, watching that game yesterday, there are two things that stick out. Andres Feliz is quickly vaulting up, and this is after his Illini career is done. He is quickly vaulting up favorite Illini ever charts in the hearts and minds of Illini fandom. If you just go on Twitter and do a quick straw poll of all the Illini fans reacting to it, and understandably, because there is a fierceness with which he plays, this dogged determination where he just gets to the rim at will. We already knew that. He uses his body, despite being at, what, 6'2", maybe, on a good day, to muscle his way to the rim. And he's just always there. He's always making plays. There was an offensive rebound that he had yesterday. Seemingly came out of nowhere, and it reminded me of that game at Iowa, where he goes up for an offensive rebound, has to tussle with Iowa to get it. And just, you don't see that from a lot of players. And it's hard to quantify that in, you know, if he were in NBA 2K20. What attribute are you putting at 99 for Andres Feliz? Intangibles? I don't know if that makes sense, but that that seems to maybe take away from the fact that he's still a very good basketball player. But you mix in those intangibles and the fact that he's always there to make a play. It's pretty remarkable, and there's no doubt that Illinois will miss him next year. If there is a season, I know there's that caveat, but there's no doubt that they will miss him on that court, even if an Iowa and a Kofi come back. That'd be an amazing team. But Andres Feliz, perhaps we are underrating the impact that he had, despite the fact that he was a fan favorite. I think Fran Fraschilla even mentioned that during the broadcast yesterday, that in a way, he was underrated in the course of the Big Ten. Didn't get on any of those all Big Ten teams, and I get it. The Big Ten was loaded last year, and that makes some sense, but... He was as impactful, especially in that stretch run when Illinois had to get off the schneid, so to speak. When Io got hurt, you had the four-game losing streak. He was as instrumental as anybody, not named Io DeSumo in that. So watching him, that's number one. Number two, getting to enjoy watching these non-Illini guys that were sort of adopting as part of this Illini nation. I don't ever use that term, but for now, what the hell? Who cares? Mike Dom, who will get in the NBA. He'll get a sniff because offensively, he is just too talented. So smooth offensively, a great shot, the ability to play around the rim. Defensively, certainly lacking, but there are teams that could use him in a role, and he will get a sniff. There's no doubt about that. Then there's Kyle Vanales. I think I'm saying that name correctly. He gets you your last two buckets of the game, including that great take to close it out. And by the way, I love the Elam ending where you get under the four timeout, Illinois, strategically, they immediately foul so they can set that score. First team to 76 wins. It eliminates all the messy fouling, free throw shooting, just the drag that college and pro basketball games can become. And I would love to see college or the pros adopt that. It's a fair way to end games. It takes the drawn out endings and just does away with them and and forces the team that's trailing to just go all out try to score as many buckets as they can in a short amount of time. So it's very exciting stuff that I was not aware of before the basketball tournament. So kudos to the organizers for coming up with these ideas. But the non-Illini guys, Mike Dom, Calvin Alleys, Billy Garrett was, <laughs> I'm texting Trevor during the game and there's even a group thread with friends 
who are watching this. And Bob Zupke, I believe, on Twitter had tweeted out that if an Illini guy misses a shot, we're all thinking, ah, that's okay. He'll get it next time. And a non-Illini guy misses a shot, and we're like, oh, well, pass the ball. What the hell are you doing? Billy Garrett was that guy yesterday, and he did have a few nice plays, especially in the second half, but he was struggling early, and <laughs> we're, we're all texting each other like, oh, Billy Garrett? The name was familiar. I had to remind myself that he was a DePaul guy. He did get, as Fran Fraschilla would say, a cup of coffee in the NBA, but it was still fun to get aggravated with a player that, you know, he's just doing his best. It's the basketball tournament. I'm not getting truly fired up but it's just nice to get that who the hell is this billy garrett guy what's he doing pass the ball to get that sort of grumpy sports fan action and it felt good to get back to that it felt good to get back to god cursing this guy for not playing well and and praising this guy for doing well and texting friends and and tweeting and just interacting about a sports game a live sports game that was very nice very refreshing we get in the fourth quarter, and you see a very aggressive style of play from House of Pain, and they were the aggressor. Now, there's no doubt that Aaron Kraft going out, that started the run for House of Pain, but I think that this would have been a win for them regardless, because Aaron Kraft goes out, I think he's probably sitting out for about four or five minutes of game time, and while House of Pain stretched it, you didn't really see any discernible difference when Aaron Kraft came back. Now, you could say that he wasn't himself because he was hobbled a little bit, but I got to be honest, there was this thing when he did come back on the court that I worried this would be another Chris Duhon injured rib game, which if you recall would have been March Madness of 2004 when a four-seed Illinois team, or five-seed I believe, played number one Duke in the Sweet 16 and Chris Duhon's injured rib, the CBS commentators just lauded him over and over. It was sickening, right? We, we all remember that. I felt as if this would be the basketball tournament equivalent because Aaron Kraft makes for a good narrative. I get it. Announcers love him. Refs certainly love him. It's not as if he plays the game the wrong way. He had a long professional career. This was his final basketball game, so that's a nice little bit of trivia down the road. Which team ended Aaron Kraft's basketball career? House of Pain. But nonetheless, it's still aggravating to watch. So I'm sure he's a super nice guy, and he tweeted out congratulations to the team yesterday, and that's very nice and classy, even though I never use that word. But <laughs> damned if I didn't want to beat Carmen's crew, and specifically Aaron Kraft and David Lighty and all these guys that owned Illinois. Dimitri McCamey on the other team, that was a bit of a conflict because Dimitri was always one of those guys that I felt got a raw deal. And I think most fans recognize that Dimitri was one of the better players of the last 20 years in Illinois basketball. He was the best player on that team, no doubt. And he would be the brunt of Bruce Weber's ire. And man, again, back to the Thad Mata, Bruce Weber, the difference between those guys when they interview Thad Mata and thinking what we could have had for 15 years. Thanks, Gunther. That's a big one. And as Breitweiser tweeted out yesterday, it seemed as if that win against Carmen's crew was this sort of cathartic um, getting back for Matt Sylvester, getting back for Gunther not hiring Thad Mata, getting back for... That one game when Ohio State came to Memorial Stadium with Luke Fickle as their interim head coach, and they completed one pass and they still won. All these ghosts from Buckeye past, and you kind of slay the dragon. I know that's an exaggeration, but you kind of do in this summer without live sports where you get a Wednesday afternoon basketball game, no fans in the stands, and yet it felt legit. And you know what? Going forward, I'm going to continue to think this thing's legit. That's pretty good basketball being played. We're talking about guys that have played for years overseas. 
these are not scrubs and this house of pain team could win it. So beginning with the game tomorrow, the red scare, and I'm not really sure what the roster looks like. I'm not at that point where I'm doing nitty gritty and breaking down matchups. And not that I usually do that anyway, but I'm more just, okay, I'm going to flip the TV on at three. I might even wear like an Illinois thing tomorrow, as goofy as that sounds and just settle in and have fun. And isn't that the key, right? Sports and the reason why we've been so craving the return of live sports is the fun and the community. The fact that Twitter, for as much guff as it may get, is a form in which people can go on there and have fun and make jokes and talk trash. And that's all things that we took for granted and maybe even said, God, Twitter's a cesspool. You know what? During sports, it might be a cesspool, but it's a fun cesspool. I love getting down knee-deep into the muck and the mire of profane Twitter sports world. And we had a little bit of that yesterday, and man, was it sorely missing. So I hope that you were able to catch it live, or if not, you know, even if you recorded it and watched it later, but were able to feel some of that true catharsis that you only get from live sports. And we all know this. If you're listening to this podcast, you're clearly an avid sports fan, just like I am we are not going to be taking it for granted when it comes back, at least not for the first few years. We'll be so grateful for any game that's on. And I know that when Major League Baseball starts up here in just two weeks from today, Yankees Nationals, ESPN, two weeks from today, I may shed a damn tear at the first pitch. I'm going to wake up tomorrow before the House of Pain Red Scare and be ready to watch a game. And that is a feeling that has been sorely missing. So that is credit to House of Pain and Mike Latulip for putting this team together, which I guess was a 10-month saga from the beginning to now. Would have loved to have seen Corey Bradford on it. That's a shame, especially when Billy Garrett was trucking up garbage. And I'm thinking, oh, God, could you imagine if just Corey Bradford were out there? I know the guy's 41, but knowing Corey, he's in good shape and he can still play. Or Ravante Rice. I think that would be another factor here too. But credit to Malcolm, who's been really good in this tournament. Andres Feliz unbelievable. Mike Dom. Michael Finke had some good minutes yesterday. Leron Black had some good minutes in that second quarter. A quiet game for Nana, and we saw that he was not in there down the stretch. And what I think is pretty cool about this is you have Mike Latulip, who's a younger guy, relatively speaking, and he knows most of these players, either played with them or got to know them over the years, I'm sure. And clearly they respect him to make these decisions. Because every guy on that bench... Well, I mean, I guess that would have been Nana, Leron, Finky at the end of the game. We're going nuts. And there's clearly no sort of ego getting in the way of, oh, man, I should have been out there taking that last shot instead of Calvin Alice. It's sort of basketball at its purest form in a, a glorified, larger scale Gus Macker tournament. But it's high quality basketball. And it is something that I hope we get to watch till its conclusion. If House of Pain wins... Fourth and Kirby, just wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I think people would buy merch. I truly do. I think people might buy merch anyways if, if they won another game even and just stretch this into the final four of the basketball tournament. This is something that we'll remember as a little slice, a little distraction in what was a summer with very few sports. So I'm enjoying it. It felt good. It feels good to feel good, doesn't it? And sports are clearly a big part of that formula, I think, for all of us. All right, that's, that's the good news. I wish we could keep going with that. And I wouldn't call this bad news, but I find the whole discussion about playing college sports in this environment interesting, more than good or bad. But clearly it is a health and safety issue, a logistical issue. And to talk about it isn't inherently negative. 
So if I were to say, I don't know if these guys should be playing, that's not a negative outlook. It's more of, okay, I, I just don't see exactly how they're going to do this and do it safely. And then living in Champaign-Urbana, thinking about this community, the impact it will have when 40,000 students, not to mention the student athletes that are already back, come back into this rather small ecosystem and go out in the community, it just seems risky. And when we talked to Sheldon Jacobson, he gets to that. He wrote uh, an op-ed in the Indy Star on July 5th about how these small to medium-sized college towns, when all the students come back, are going to become new epicenters. And he doesn't mince words about that. As a professor, he'll see it firsthand on campus. As a teacher, I do worry a little bit about getting back into a classroom because on one hand, I want to get back. I'm noticing that all the idle time, the lack of interaction with my peers and then with the students, that is taking its own sort of toll. Certainly, I'm not stressed because you do get stressed when you teach, but maybe I didn't mind that stress. Maybe I didn't mind that sort of you know stimulus of being in a room with a bunch of other people and having to essentially perform for five different classes a day. I do miss that. But there is the question of safety. And we're finding, like everything else in the last few months, that this has unfortunately become politicized. And within this week, I think you're seeing the intersection of the education debate, the college sports debate. And I say college sports to differentiate it from pro sports. Pro sports are probably going to proceed. And then individuals that get sick, they just simply sit out. Or individuals that want to opt out, they simply opt out. But I don't think that Major League Baseball or the NBA are going to fold at this point. Full steam ahead and COVID-19 be damned, for better or worse, right? For better or worse. But when I think of college sports and now the ongoing discussion about education, it is frustrating to think that the majority of the arguments behind opening these things back up, getting the games going again, getting students back in the classroom, is far more economic than it is educational or about growing the individual, any of those sort of lofty things that we usually associate with education. Yes, we're here to grow the individual. We're here to teach them, to make them better citizens. No, 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 no. It ain't about that. We are being told pretty transparently, whether it be from the federal level or whether it be from colleges, their own presidents and chancellors, that money is important and they need it. So I do, ex- I, I understand that. I understand the conundrum that universities are in, that communities are in if they don't open up the schools and get kids back in there so parents can begin working again. I understand why the economy is important because a crap economy leads to a whole host of issues, including health issues. It does. But it is frustrating to have gone on into teaching, and I probably should have foreseen this anyways, but it's frustrating to go into teaching and find out rather quickly that in the minds of many, including parents, education is merely childcare. It's a daycare center, no matter the age. Get them out of the house. I got to go to work. And and not out of some sort of, you know, (laughs) I'm not saying by any means that these parents are just getting their kids out of the way. No, no, no. They need to go to work. They have other obligations. It is essential, I understand, in this economy, in the society, for schools to be open. I acknowledge that. I just feel as if that is something that is a bit of an indictment uh, on the way we do things. That in the middle of a pandemic, even, we're saying, get him back in the classroom. Or student-athletes, get back on the field. Why? Oh, money. Money, right. The economy. So let's not try to blow any smoke here and pretend that this is about education or anything like that. This is coming down from the highest levels. This is about 
the economy and making money. So for college sports, yesterday was a terrible day. Pat Forty wrote about this for Yahoo Sports, and I'm going to get to that in a second, but it was probably the worst day yet for any idea that college sports are going to come back and that we're actually going to pull this thing off. We see Ohio State last night. This would have been yesterday evening. I guess that's Wednesday evening around like 6, 7 o'clock Eastern time. Temporarily suspend all athletic practices and activities. Now, they did not disclose how many players came down with COVID-19, but I got to think it's more than one or two if they're shutting the whole thing down. And not just football, but any fall sport that was back, they are temporarily suspending those activities. Of course, there was also the Ivy League. And they come out yesterday and they say that fall sports uh, canceled or at least postponed until the spring at the earliest, spring 2021. I understand the argument that these Ivy League schools can withstand that. They are not as dependent upon income from athletics as Power 5 schools. They simply aren't. We're seeing that most of them are making the move to online-only instruction. Now, you could say, well, Harvard, how dare they charge full price for online instruction? because you weren't getting the full college experience. I get that, but you're still getting a diploma from Harvard. And that's another problem that we could get into, but that's a whole other podcast for probably an entirely different podcast realm about how college diplomas essentially are, whether you get it online or in class, they're a piece of paper that you can say, I went to Harvard. So we can pretend as if that's unfair that they're charging full price, but ultimately a Harvard diploma is a Harvard diploma. Credits at Harvard mean the same, no matter what job they're going to get afterwards. Regardless, not to deviate too much from the main point here, college sports are operating at the moment as if, okay, we're just going to kind of play whack-a-mole. These things will pop up and we'll address them when they do. But best laid plans, we're finding out, are not necessarily great plans to begin with. And it is a bit frustrating to think that even over here, about five minutes from my house, If a player were to come down with COVID-19, the University of Illinois, or more specifically the athletic department, is not going to let us know about it. They wouldn't have to let us know who got it. That's a violation of HIPAA and all that sort of stuff, right? But they could let us know how many. In a community this small, we should probably know that, oh, well, there might be a new epicenter growing over on campus. Now, what is inevitable, as we talk here with Sheldon Jacobson, that when the students come back, there will be an outbreak of cases, Does that mean an outbreak in deaths? Not necessarily. Champaign-Urbana, for example, has been pretty strong in that regard because more people getting it are younger. So naturally, we aren't having as many deaths here as you see in places where nursing homes are having outbreaks. These are things to consider. But nonetheless, when it comes to actually playing the games and getting these guys on the field or playing basketball when we get into November, as we spoke with Harry on the last episode, Let's just call it what it is. This is simply for money. It's not about doing this safely so much as it is doing it safe enough. Safely enough so you don't get the blowback, whether that be from public relations, from your own student athletes to say, hey, listen, there's way too many of us that got it. We aren't playing anymore. There are so many scenarios that we probably can't even envision now that will pop up. And it seems as if universities and athletic departments are ill-equipped to handle them when they do. And again, as we speak with Professor Jacobson in a bit, a lot of this is going to be dependent on behavior. And this is where I go a little bit back and forth. We have an outbreak in the nation and most of them, I I say most, but the age group with the highest growth in terms of COVID-19 cases are the, let's say, 18 to 25 or 18 to 34, younger. 
Younger people that are living their lives, they're getting it because they're just inherently taking more risk. Are they dying at as high of a level? No. But can they spread it? Certainly. And eventually, if the numbers get that bad, even if it's all younger people, it's not as if a 65-year-old person isn't going to the grocery store anymore or isn't going to the barber. In other words, the transmission is going to be there. But when it comes to behavior and thinking back to when I was 18 to 22 years old over the University of Illinois, and let's say that I was entering my junior or senior year in the middle of this, what kind of changes would I make? And I've thought about that, and in all honesty, I would probably still hang with friends. Would I be as likely to go to Firehouse if that bar were still around? Probably not. And I'll be completely honest, for me in college, the most fun was always just hanging out at like a friend's apartment. Going to a bar was always this hassle where you wait outside for 15, 20 minutes, sometimes in the freezing cold. And I'm thinking, why didn't we just stay at so-and-so's apartment? We were having a great time there, and it's cheaper. But... I would still probably hang out with friends. I wouldn't say, hey guys, I'm just going to be sequestered in my apartment and the only thing I'm going to do is go to class. God knows I didn't do that enough back in college. And I probably, you know, in hindsight, would not have changed that part of my behavior either and said, you know, the only thing I'm going to do is go into the socially distanced classroom, wear a mask, use hand sanitizer, all that. It, It just seems as if Trevor had mentioned the last podcast that we have door A and behind door A is one step. And behind door B are 5,289. Now door A, that one step, of course, is just, hold on, hit the pause button. We need to get this under control before we start opening up schools. And then, and, and that would go for college sports as well. Behind door B, you have 5,289 steps. And those are all the steps that you need to take to actually pull this thing off. Now, in America, we would probably like to fancy ourselves problem solvers. You know, we, we get things done. And certainly we're leading the world right now in COVID-19, though, just not in a very good way. But I understand why there is this inclination to get back to it. The professor speaks to that. I think there is credence to this idea that we can't just sit back at home. I don't want to do that either. I'm 33 going on 34. I feel like even if I get it, I'll probably be okay. But at the same time, we've come this far. We already found out that in the state of Illinois, for two months, we did what we had to do. For the most part, we have things under control now. But that second wave they talk about, which I know the nation hasn't really had that dip to get to a second wave, but Illinois has. We've gotten it down to a controllable level. Maybe we can pull this off. But it is a scary thought to think that we can get into the fall and find ourselves right back where we began. Because if you remember back in March and April... As all these numbers were exploding in certain areas, specifically New York, Chicago, Detroit, a little bit of California, that they were exploding without schools being in session. So we don't have these Petri dishes operating back in March and April, and that probably helped keep the numbers down. So we don't even know the extent to which this thing would grow when we get student-athletes back in the football performance center, when we get college students back in the lecture hall socially distanced or not, or more importantly, when we get college students into the residence halls. We don't know what's going to happen when we get students K through 12 back into the classroom setting, socially distanced or not, asking them to wear a mask for six hours a day, whatever it may be. It is getting to that point, sort of like it was back in March, when every bit of news that comes out feels like it's leading to an inevitable conclusion, that there won't be college sports that there won't be students on campus for a lot of these larger schools, that maybe we don't put students K-12 through back in the classroom. It seems like it's trending that way. 
A month ago, I would have thought, that's probably ridiculous. We got this thing under control. Clearly, we didn't. I say we, that's the country at large. We screwed it up. This is one of the great failures. I'm thinking back to Hurricane Katrina. Clearly, that was a moment. I would have been a freshman in college when that happened. And I saw this thing unfolding and all the powerful images on TV and the absence of leadership and what it led to. Essentially led to a lame duck three years for George W. Bush, which he was anyways. He wouldn't have been able to get reelected. But after that, things changed. And it didn't feel all that great to be an American. And what I mean by that is you didn't have a lot of faith in the federal government or people in power, just to use a broader term, to figure out solutions to your problems. Oh boy, we're okay, we're we're going this alone because clearly the guys up top, they don't know what the hell they're doing. Well, that's child's play compared to what we're seeing here in 2020. And the more that we see the same people that have failed us in this pandemic, the more we see them say, get back in school. Hey, get those student athletes back out there. We, Americans need their football. The more I think, now nah, maybe we shouldn't. Uh, maybe these people don't know what the hell they're talking about, and maybe we should just hit a pause button on this. But we're going to look back on 2020, and it's regardless a lost year. That's what it is. You can try to make the best of it. I think the long-term benefits of hitting rock bottom like this could far exceed the pain that we're going through now. I still am rather optimistic that we can take this whole experience and end up on the other side, but better than we are right now. I still have that. But in the meantime, in dealing with this and figuring out what to do, I, I want to caution myself and not get to this point of saying, well, you just got to shut everything down. I don't think that's the case. But when it's been told that mass gatherings, that this thing travels by air, indoors especially, that we would actually consider putting kids back in classrooms, that we'd consider 22 guys on a football field ramming into each other and just breathing and sweating and all that stuff. When you consider college students going to a bar, which is going to happen again this weekend, unless by the time you listen to this podcast, the Champagne and Urbana leadership has decided to close bars during Greek reunion. Petri dish. That's what it is. I'm not a hypochondriac. I figure if I get it, I get it. It's going to suck if I do, but okay. You know, hopefully it's rather short-lived and I'm not one of those rare but still true cases where someone might have permanent damage or anything. I, as long as I'm not that, okay, fine. But I do think to the fall and how my parents, for example, 65 plus, and for many of my friends, parents are in the same situation, where they're in that at-risk group. And eventually you can't always hang out outside. So are we going to get to the fall and my parents are going to have to make that choice to essentially not hang out when the temperatures get, you know, 50 degrees or below, they just simply can't hang out with me and Kara or my sister's family and all the grandkids. I mean, is that a choice they're going to have to make? It seems to be trending that way. When it felt as if the sacrifice we made back in March and April should have set us up for a future and maybe even a fall where we could pull something like that off. And instead, because of the acts of some selfish asses, <laughs> you know, you walk into Schnooks or Meyer, and for the most part, it's pretty good, but occasionally you do see a young 25-year-old whippersnapper walking around, smiling without a mask, and I don't know whether to confront them or not, but at the end of the day, it is just pure selfishness. It's a blatant disregard for others, a lack of compassion, and, and I don't get that. I don't. It's a minor inconvenience at most, at most. But it is frustrating to feel like you were the kid in class who did the right thing, right? You did your homework, you turned it in, you 
been quiet when the teacher asked you to because you know that that pizza party, I think I'm using Trevor or Harry's example here. One of them said this on Sunday. You got the pizza party to look forward to as long as you do what you got to do. But there's that one knucklehead in class, that one knucklehead that keeps acting up. And then before you know it, the teacher says, that's it. No pizza party for you guys. Well, the pizza party for us would be, you know, hanging out with family and friends without worrying about it too much for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Maybe that would have been a far cry from reality, even if we had flattened the curve and you get a second wave. I get that. But nonetheless, to feel as if that moment is on the horizon again, where by opening up everything like we're talking about will essentially lead to more cases and say, hey, uh, at-risk groups, we're just going to sequester you over here for a while because we weren't able to get this under control ourselves. What a failure. I don't want to get cynical. I don't want this to sound cynical. It sucks right now. And in trying to think about after all this is said and done, do I have more faith in humanity or less? I still have more. I just have less faith in a segment of the population that has turned this into some sort of culture war, politicized thing that it's not. It just simply isn't. Any science-based, reasonable argument would tell you there are things that we could have done from the outset that would have kept this under control. But instead of any coordinated response, we get each state doing their own thing, some of them doing it better than others. But even with best laid plans, the state of Illinois that controlled this, it's going to go right back up because of the states surrounding us. I mean, listen, this virus is not going to be contained in state borders. It's going to travel. And after all the trips to Florida and Myrtle Beach and all that that people have taken over this year, and they come back to Illinois right before school starts, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So prepare yourselves for the worst case scenario. As a teacher, I'm preparing myself for what is it going to be like to be inside of a classroom with a mask on. That's fine. Down for that. But making sure that I can police all 12, 13 kids in my classroom, that they keep it on while they're in there. Making sure that they don't, you know, they aren't touching each other or messing around in the bathroom, which you think, why would kids do that? Listen, kids are, <laughs> kids just do funny things and it's just part of their nature. And, and essentially the other thing that I'm thinking about is how we could say that it will mess kids up if they don't get back into school, that there's a psychological impact there. I'm thinking of the visual. If I'm a 12, 13 year old middle school student, I get back to school Half of my friends aren't there because we're in group A and group B. So we're socially distancing. We're splitting days up. I'm only going two days a week. And that seems to be the trend that it's going to for most school districts. And I look around a room and I see 11, 12 fellow students with their mask on, sitting forward in their desk, socially distanced, quiet, a little tense, a little anxious. This is weird. Think of that school setting. We are not sending these kids back to normal school. Hey, recess. Go- no, no. This is not this is not normal where you get a joke around in the hallways between classes. This is like dystopian George Orwell 1984 classroom setting where the kids just sit very tight in their desk looking straight ahead and oh, oh can't talk to a friend and no. Listen. I feel like that could be just as detrimental. I mean, this is the reality. This has been the reality since March. So this rush to get things back to normal, we wouldn't be going back to normal. We'd be going back to a very weird, abnormal setting, whether that be the school or really a lot of workplaces in general. The The sense of shared sacrifice that we can actually kind of overcome this thing, we've lost that somewhere along the line. 
when we aren't going to war, we aren't asking people to go off and die in a foreign country for this. We're just asking them to care for their fellow citizen. And man, have we really kind of blown it. As we talk with Sheldon Jacobson, it's not too late. So I say all that and truly am trying to stay optimistic about the nature of of our citizens, of humans in general, and I think that you'll find yourself feeling better after this conversation because Professor Jacobson does get into the raw numbers and data, and those aren't good. He also does give us a path forward. It is an interesting path that, you know, everything you probably just heard me say, I don't 100% agree with the final assessment that he has. However, I do know it's coming from a place of research and that there is no easy answer here and that there's inherent risk no matter what we do. So without further ado, let's get to this. You're going to enjoy this conversation with Professor Sheldon Jacobson. Again, he's a founder, founding professor in computer science at the University of Illinois, director of Bedtime Research Institute, director of the Simulation Optimization Laboratory. Please follow him at SHJ Analytics. He is going to be continuing research on COVID-19, its effect on college campuses, its effect on college football, and he will post all those things on Twitter and does so fairly regularly. He's writing articles and op-eds about this throughout the way, and he was a very interesting person to talk to who gives a bunch of information in a digestible way. So I think you will enjoy this. I know I did. And I think as we go down the road here and maybe schools open back up, if college football is in fact played, this is a story that will continue to linger with us until the inevitable vaccine and all that kind of good stuff, right? But in the meantime, enjoy the most sciencey conversation we've had on the 200 level, but an interesting one at that. Professor Sheldon Jacobson, the 200 level. This is a first for the 200 level. We've had sports media types. We've had athletes. We have not had a professor of computer science, and that's what we have today with Professor Sheldon Jacobson, founder professor in computer science at the University of Illinois, director of Bedtime Research Institute, and also the director of Simulation and Optimization Laboratory on Twitter at SHJ Analytics. And Professor, most people... Uh, if they don't know the name, they would have seen the headline last week that came out in a CBS article written by Dennis Dodd that if college football were to be played, three to seven college football players may die from COVID-19. That's a headline a lot of people will run with. What is some of the nuance that may have gotten lost in translation after that article came out? Well, thank you for uh, having me on the show, Mike. I appreciate it and the opportunity to share our research with you. Uh, college football um, is a big issue right now for universities, for fans. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to get a better understanding that if students do come back for in-person education, uh, what are the risks for football teams playing? Uh, we wanted to focus our attention on the football bowl series teams. So there's 110 of them and there's around 13,000 such players. If they step onto the field, if they go through summer training, if they practice, what kind of risk is being posed to them because of the COVID-19 pandemic? And we basically took the, their age cohort, looked at uh, the, the incidence of the cases as well as the deaths in that age cohort, and we came up with an estimate that somewhere between three and seven college football players this year in the FBS teams uh, could potentially die as a result of being infected. 
we looked a little more closely at the analysis and said, well, who on the team is most likely to die? Well, who has underlying health conditions? Do we know if any of the players have asthma? Do we know if any of the players have uh, high blood pressure potentially? Uh, we know that some of the players uh, you know, may be asthmatic. Uh, we don't know who, but we know that it does exist. And the other issue is uh, obesity. And you may think, well, these are athletes. How can they be obese? Well, at the University of Illinois, around a quarter of the players are well over 300 pounds, and some of the tight ends are a little more solid, but some of the linemen would be clinically obese based on the body mass index. And those players would be quite a bit at risk. And when you consider that we have on the order of around 20 to 25 of those players over 110 teams, we're talking about over 2,000 what would be considered at-risk college athletes. So this was the kind of analysis that we reported and that has been disseminated through the media over the last couple of weeks. There was another stat in there from the, you said 13,000 players in FBS of, across 110 plus teams, and that there'd be a 30 to 50% infection rate. And what struck me from the moment we started talking about football coming back is I look at baseball and there are occasional moments where there might be two players very near each other, but there's enough distance for the most part. With football specifically, guys running into each other, breathing on each other, you know, short of a helmet that would filter out any sort of impurity. I mean, is there any way that college football could feasibly be done in a safe way that would not infect nearly that many people? Well, the answer to your question really is that nobody knows for sure until you step on the field. Because when players have been coming back for voluntary workouts now at Clemson, LSU, Alabama, they, they've been doing testing and Clemson already has 30% of their players testing positive. And they haven't even started formal workouts. So what we try to do is say, well, what's the infection rate among that age group in the country? And the case, the case rate, in other words, the number that have been clinically diagnosed with testing is only around 2%. So you think, well, then that would probably be what we would have on, on the football field. And the difficulty is that for every case that is diagnosed, there may be as many as 10 cases that are infections, but are asymptomatic. So we probably have a much higher group uh, or a percentage in this age cohort of college students who have the infection. What we don't know is how many of those asymptomatic cases would be symptomatic with a higher risk group. And that's why you look at the college football teams and you have a higher proportion of them being large men. That places them, based on guidelines you receive from the CDC, at greater risk. Does anybody know what the exact percentage is going to be? Well, no. We're guessing. And that's why I gave a range. It could be as low as 10%. It could be 20%. But we do know that there are going to be players who are infected with symptoms. The exact percentage, we don't know at this point. The best we can offer are different scenarios. So we use 30 to 50% as a scenario, but it could be 10%. And if it is, then the expected number of deaths would drop to, you know, one and a half to two. It's just a question of what's going to happen. What we do know is that there's going to be infections. We do know that once the players start practicing, even if they form bubbles, 
they are going to infect each other. So infections are not the issue. The question is, how do we minimize the bad outcomes resulting from those infections? And you're going to get to a point that it's conceivable that a team could have, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent of the infections with half of them being asymptomatic. So they show no symptoms. They're not at any risk. The other will have some symptoms, probably three quarters will be mild, but you may have maybe 12 of them which show some severe symptoms. If they happen to be linemen, and that's what we don't know, there's a quarter of them are linemen, then you could end up with a, you know two to three of them in the hospital. And based on statistics, you end up with three, four in the hospital, you start to see deaths. And that's where our analysis came in. And the thing that's tricky about when an article like this comes out, and I think where you'll see maybe some skepticism for someone that might read it, is they'll look at models, let's say from back in March and April from, what is it, NIH, I think was one that often did a model for uh, COVID deaths and hospitalizations. And they would say, well, I mean, that wasn't accurate. So therefore, this wasn't ac- this may not be accurate. But you also kind of hit on it there that essentially, you know, there's kind of a formula that you put into place here, you do your research, and this is your best guess as to what would happen if 13,000 athletes get back on the field and all the transmission that may come with that. That's right. Uh, there's, a, there's an old expression in, in science and engineering and computer science and mathematics that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And that's why when people ask for a precise number, how many deaths are going to be? Is it three? Is it four? Is it two? Is it seven? I can't give that answer. But I can tell you that there are certain trends. And these trends suggest that infections among young people, a small percentage lead to severe outcomes, bad outcomes, which lead to deaths. And with such a large group of people, 13,000, with a certain physical health characteristics of weight and body mass index, that suggests we're going to see some in the hospital and a very small number, unfortunately, who will die. As you're conducting this research, you've mentioned some of the variables. So there's BMI, there's uh, obesity, which I guess would go kind of hand in hand with that for some of those linemen, especially. You talk about the age cohort. Are there any other main variables that are a part of this that, that you may not have mentioned so far? The other thing is that a lot of the data in the country is reported for the age group. What we're trying to do now is break it down between men and women, because men, it turns out, are almost twice as likely to die from COVID-19 as women in that college student age group. So that tells you there that they have more risk than people think just because of the fact that they're men rather than women. All of these subtleties, I continue to build into my analysis and refine my forecast. It doesn't change the fact, I'm not going to get to the point that I'm going to say there's going to be no deaths, but it does change the magnitude of the number of deaths. And it could go down, it could go up. As I develop more insights and collect more data, I remember when I talked to Dennis, I said, the conclusions I come up with when when I reported to him, they may be different in two weeks because I'm on any new data. And and even in the last couple of days, I've gotten some wonderful new data about the gender differences, which is refining my analysis. This is an ongoing process, which will continue through July and into the beginning of college football season. So this is something that I'm aware of, and people want an answer today, which is guaranteed correct, and I can't do that. 
And you mentioned the beginning of college football season. I'm more skeptical than ever that we're going to get that. A month ago, maybe. But as we're seeing the, the cases rise nationwide and all these hotspots emerge, specifically California, Arizona, Florida, and that's just to name a few. Is that something that you're factoring in as you continue to adjust the um, the outcomes of all the data you're putting in? Is that would, would that just include, let's say, Florida and X amount of counties down there have cases and we know that X amount of college football players play at some school in Florida? Or is that so specific that it could maybe, maybe uh, I don't know, it just seems daunting to me to maybe try to get all that information, but maybe that's something that you've looked at. Well, if all of the FBS teams were in Florida, or all of them were in you know, uh, Massachusetts, or whatever state you choose, then doing a region-specific analysis would make sense. But because the FBS teams are scattered across the five power conferences and other parts of the United States, it smooths it out quite considerably because the players are coming from all over the nation. Some in hotspot areas, some not so much. By looking at these averages, which are aggregated across the country, it smooths that out. The other issue that is really important is, and and I've, I've made this point in many interviews now, is that if a university makes a decision that they are going to only have online education, Uh, which represents on the order of around 15% of the universities right now, they should not bring their football players back. If you're going to have either in-person education or some hybrid, so students will be on campus, the real risk to the football players is the same risk effectively to all the other students. So the decision to have football is actually being made at the chancellor or the president's level, not at the athletic director's level. Because once a chancellor or a president of university says, we're going to have some form of in-person education, then there's a level of risk that is being exposed to, to the entire student body. The addition of any intercollegiate sport like football, like uh, volleyball, like soccer, which are all fall sports uh, at the University of Illinois and other universities, that increases very, very small. So the real jump in risk to the, to the student athletes is the fact that everybody's on campus. That's the key point. I want to get to that in a second because you wrote an op-ed that was in the Indy Star on the 5th about students returning to campus and the risk that would be associated with that. This is a very general question, but looking at how the European Union, for example, has been able to actually take this first wave down to a manageable level, far more manageable than where we're at in the United States. If the United States were in a position like a Germany, for example, would the numbers read far differently in this uh, particular research? The United States is, by definition, a very heterogeneous and diverse country. There are people who have very, very wide and varied perspectives on their responsibilities in society. I think you'll find in the European Union and other parts of the country, it's a much narrower focus. If you go to you know, countries in Asia, it is very, very regimented, and it's much easier to control people. What we saw initially with COVID-19 was this massive surge in the New York City area, which included Connecticut and New Jersey. And the unfortunate thing that we discovered is that age matters. If you get the disease when you're 15 versus when you get it and you become infected when you're 85, your likelihood of an outcome being bad when you're 85 is significantly higher than when you're 15. 
And unfortunately, people died in the New York City area because of that. For example, there were children in school who lived in multi-generational households. They had their parents, they had their grandparents. The children would come home most likely infected, but asymptomatic and literally kill their grandparents. And they didn't know they were doing it. And it took us a while to figure that out. If you look in the European Union, a large percentage of the deaths have been in senior living centers. It's true also in our country, but not quite as severe. The point being is that because of our diversity of views, uh, right now, the majority, not all, but a large fraction of the, the infections, the cases which are new in the United States are people under 40. And their likelihood of bad outcomes is nowhere near as if this entire group was the same uh, age cohort as we saw in the New York City area. Even in the Champaign-Urbana area, where almost 80% of the cases are under 50 years old. Uh, because of that, we have less deaths than you would expect based on the number of infections. We're approaching 1,000 infections. You would expect that we would be having you know, 40 to 45 deaths right now. Well, we're 15. And it's like, well, why? Are we, what are we doing better? The only thing we're doing better is that our age distribution is skewed to the younger side. And age makes a tremendous difference. So the fact that we have a lot more cases, people are assuming with 50,000, 60, 100,000 cases a day, we're going to see the same kind of deaths we saw in New York City. And the data I've looked at suggests that's just not going to be the case. It doesn't mean there's not going to be any deaths. It just means that we're not going to have this massive surge. And part of it is personal responsibility. Uh, young people have figured out that they just don't get very sick and they don't want to be inconvenienced and change their life. And as a result, they are prepared to live their life how they want, get infected, you know, possibly 80 to 90% of the time, they don't even know they're infected, but they're still contagious. And unfortunately, if they interact with their older relatives and friends, they could kill them. You mentioned how America's heterogeneous and it's got very diverse perspectives, and that is unlike, let's say, China or name a country in the European Union, same sort of thing. So do you think that a federal mask mandate or some other measure like that would have ultimately been effective, or would that have not really jived with this diverse perspective that we're kind of used to having here in the United States? Do you think people would have maybe just shunned it, even if it did come down from a federal level? Well, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, <laughs> uh, so I don't know who has those responsibilities. You know, the, the opening and closing of economies were state decisions made right. by governors. And many governors are now kind of buying into the mask issue because when you close a state down and the economy is shut and people are not interacting, it doesn't give the virus the opportunity to move from person to person, which are their hosts. Uh, now that that has been opened up and everybody is free to roam around, the only countermeasures we have to limit the, the transmission of the virus is uh, hand hygiene, uh, social distancing, and face masks. And face masks are really a game changer because it enables us to do so many more things than we could do uh, if we didn't have them. But there are people think that it's a civil liberties issue. It's, I mean, you get these extreme views. I've written a couple of op-eds on face masks of how important they are. And it's critical that we use them when we're in places where social distancing is not feasible. So that means anywhere indoors where there's at least another person there, 
wear a face mask. Some people refuse to. You can go to the grocery stores and some grocery stores mandate it, other grocery stores suggest it. And you see from the clientele that some people are wearing them, some are not. Uh, and once again, the people not wearing them don't look like they're at risk, but they potentially could be infecting someone who is at risk and ultimately lead to their death. I want to get to this op-ed that appeared in the Indy Star a couple days ago, and this is one of the paragraphs from it. I was going to read it and then get your take specific to Champaign-Urbana. It read, with students poised to return living off campus in large multi-unit housing, using the same public transportation system, shopping the same grocery stores, and frequenting the same restaurants as local residents, opportunities for virus transmission resemble the large, densely populated urban centers that were hardest hit in April and May. And when I read that, the first thing I thought of is, hey, we're one of those medium-sized college towns that everything's been hunky-dory so far, for the most part, and 40,000 students coming into this ecosystem here, that that could be a problem. And uh, as a professor yourself, that probably is a concern as both a citizen locally and also as someone that might be teaching in a lecture hall. Yeah, we, we wrote another op-ed uh, back in April, which we published in the uh, Wisconsin State Journal, which talked about, you know, Big Ten schools being a real area of concern as we move to the fall. And this was a more recent update in the Indianapolis Star. Uh, yes, uh, when I wrote this op-ed, I was thinking very much about the Champaign-Urbana area because the students who come in, many of them are going to be coming from the Chicagoland area, uh, which has a higher rate of the infection spreading around, even though it's much better than it was. It's much higher than ours, a higher positivity rate. We're in a situation that when you bring 20, 30, 40,000 students together, uh, you're going to ask them to wear masks. You're going to ask them to social distance, but 18 to 24 year olds just don't do that well. Universities are not designed for social distancing. The culture of an institution of higher education is to bring people together. And within a week, you're going to see people dropping off from either social distancing. It's hard to hide if you're you know, wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. You either are or you aren't. But what happens is the, uh, the university community outside of the students, which is the faculty, the staff, and then the greater community in Urbana-Champaign are, are at tremendous risk, which means that our healthcare infrastructure at the major health centers that we have have to be prepared for a large number of hospitalizations, not among the students, interestingly enough, but among the residents of the town, because they're going to be exposed to infected and contagious students. And that's the great concern we have when you bring back a large group of people in a small area. We're a relatively small area, around 100 square miles, 10 miles by 10 miles. You bring 40,000 people back here and you realize, gee, that's a high density of people. And it is a fertile ground for a public health uh, nightmare. If you were advising a chancellor or a president of a university, especially as we sit here six weeks from, or maybe even five weeks, I'm not sure when move-in day would be, but soon enough, what advice would you give in terms of reopening? And would it be a hybrid method? Would it be, we just got to wait until, like, keep them at home until we figure more of this out? What advice would you give? Well, universities like ours rely on the in-person education experience. You can keep kicking it down the road, but at some point you lose the value of the education experience and you cannot, can no longer justify 
the cost of the education. So I think many of the universities like ours, University of Illinois, but other Big Ten schools, Big 12 schools, SEC, ACC, they're all saying we have to bring the students back. And at some point, you just have to do it. Uh, the advice that I, I give, and I, I've written it up and published it nationally in other op-eds, is define what you mean by risk. Is risk cases? If risk are cases, online education is the only choice. You cannot bring anybody back. If you're willing to accept cases among the low-risk group, then you have to make sure the infrastructure to support the residents and the faculty and staff in terms of the healthcare infrastructure, hospital beds, uh, ventilators are in place because there will be surges. You have to build your surge capacity beforehand, not after. And then you create the environment like requiring masks in buildings, outside of buildings, and this is not something that you're, you slack on. Our campus has a no smoking policy both inside and outside buildings, anywhere on campus, no smoking. We have to have a similarly regimented policy in place and in many ways create the environment so that the students will self-enforce. Not because they are going to save themselves, they don't have to, but because they're going to save their professors, the people who help them get food at the residency halls, whatever it is, and the people in the community. Because otherwise, we can, you know, we're going to have hundreds of deaths each day at the University of Illinois in the first few days. We're going to have thousands, uh, excuse me, not deaths, cases. Uh, we're going to have sure. know, hundreds of cases per day. We're going to have thousands of cases in the first month if we stay on this path. The key is keeping that cohort of cases limited to the lowest risk group. If we can succeed in doing that, then we will get to the other side because the students, once they're infected, and we're still learning the, the biology of the virus, the belief is if it follows most viruses, they will gain the antibodies so they won't be able to infect other people. And somewhere on the other side, and it's probably going to be in the, in the January winter semester, the, the spring semester, we're going to be okay. But if they say, no, we're sending the students back and panic and run away from the risk, then we're in trouble. And How the last thing I would tell them is sure. share your information broadly. Do not hide cases because that's going to undermine your ability to succeed. Well, and one example of that is how the DIA, the athletic department, has said that they will not release any information. If a student were to test positive, not only will they not give the name out, but they won't even give the numbers out. Like three student athletes tested positive today. They will report it to public health, but they would not make it public other than that. Um, I was going to ask you about the, the plans that the U of I has unveiled with the rapid saliva testing. I think they already have the tents. I've seen it as I run through campus. They got tents set up in, in front of Follinger by the six pack. They probably got four or five of them. And at first glance, it seems like a fairly comprehensive plan that, okay, well, maybe best case scenario, this could work. Uh, what are your thoughts on the plans thus far for when students come back, how they're going to implement testing and then quarantine methods, all of that sort of thing? The university's proposal are standard CDC recommended guidelines. I think they're all well within what is considered acceptable. The challenge is that just like when we were staying at home, we, we, we got stay at home fatigue. Will the students get tired of being tested regularly? Will they get tired of wearing a mask and social distancing? And anytime you lax on any of these countermeasures, 
the virus will penalize you with cases. And if those cases end up with the wrong people, you end up with hospitalizations and ultimately deaths. That is the challenge that the university will have. So I think the plan is perfectly reasonable. Uh, the question is, uh, will it be implementable and sustainable? And that one, nobody knows. In terms of behaviors, especially for that 18 to 23, 24 cohort, which certainly are less susceptible to death, but we've seen images even from Joe's Brewery a couple weeks ago. We actually have Greek Reunion, I believe, coming up this weekend at That's Campus right. Bars. And whether or not it's outside on the you know, balcony of Cam's or Joe's, man, they're, they're, they're pretty close to each other. And I'm thinking, okay, okay. I know they might be going back home to Chicago this weekend, but five or six weekends from now, they're staying right here. I, I guess my skepticism is more about behaviors than necessarily anything that the university has implemented because it seems like that's about the best the university can do. But after that, it's really out of their hands. And that's, you're absolutely correct, Mike, because the plans are sound, but the behavior of students is unpredictable. And unfortunately, as a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, the behavior may end up overriding the plans and making it dysfunctional. Question here for you about, as from a teacher's perspective, I'm going to be going back into a classroom in some way, shape, and form in about six weeks for sixth grade students, and we'll see about the mask scoring thing. That, that'll be a pretty big hill to, to climb, I think, for younger kids. But as a college professor and um, thinking about getting back into a lecture hall, even if it is socially distanced, I'm not sure if they're going to be bothering with discussion groups or not this year. But um, what are your primary concerns as an educator for getting back into a classroom setting? Well, the types of classes that we have on campus are so diverse that there's really no one-size-fits-all you know, remedy. If you have these large, massive classes, you cannot run them in person. That's They have to be online. If you have smaller, more specialized classes, they can be run in person with no problems as long as everybody follows the protocols. And then you get labs, which are very, very challenging because you're, you have people you know, together working on projects. And these are things that are very, very challenging, especially, you know, chemistry, physics labs. Uh, we, we don't want to degrade the educational experience, but now you have to bring in the health aspect of all of this. And once again, it's not the students who are at risk. It's potentially the lab technician who's been at the university for 35 years, who's 65 years old. That person is at tremendous risk. They can't be there, which means there's going to have to be a repurposing of roles and and purposes and goals of the entire educational system. And you do that to minimize the impact on the education you're delivering while maximizing the protection of health. And, and this is a complex issue, obviously. Before I let you go, Professor, a couple quick questions. The first uh, would have been that back in March, there would have been a whole discussion about bracketology, and you've actually been running bracket odds. And it's if someone just Googles it, bracket odds, they'll find it, and it's through Illinois.edu. How many years have you been doing this, and uh, how accurate has it been? Because this is much more, again, back to what you do, data-based as opposed to the actual selection committee that might look at relationships, rivalries, that sort of thing, too. 
we've been very data driven in our approach to March Madness and bracketology. We started doing research back around 2007, 2008, published a paper in 2009. And then in 2011, we launched the Bracket Odds website. Uh, we've had uh, over 650,000 visitors since then, and it continues to increase, most of them in the 72 hours after Selection Sunday until the tournament begins. And it is basically an opportunity for students, both graduate and undergraduate students, to take data, use data, and uh, have some fun with it. So we call it a STEM, Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math Learning Lab. And what we do is everything is seed-based. So we're blind to the teens. We only care about the seeds. And it's amazing how predictive our models can be, given the fact that we don't use specific information about the teens. This may be salt in the wound for some Illini fans, but where would they have been if the well, brackets had followed what you guys were doing this year? Entering the uh, Big Ten tournament, we were looking at them as being kind of a weak six or a strong seven seed. With a good performance, they would have solidified their place as a six. They would have had to have gone all the way to the final game to sneak into the five line. Uh, most likely that wouldn't have occurred. And if they had had a poor showing, they could have fallen maybe to an eight, but I doubt it since they were so strong. They were in the week six line. So we were looking at a six and a seven, and that's a great matchup for them. And they, they had great players. Uh, looking ahead to the 2021 season where we do early forecasts, I have them listed as a six right now for the reason is that are they a top 25 team? And I believe, and maybe it's just wishful thinking, that uh, Kofi Hulkburn will actually come back. Uh, he's just not ready for that big leap. Uh, Ayo may not get drafted or maybe in the second round and won't have a guaranteed contract. And it's not clear how Europe will fare with college bas with basketball in, their, in the European Union. Uh, if he stayed another year, you know, we're a, we're a top uh, a top 10 team easily and he can push himself into being, in fact, uh, a first round draft pick, a guaranteed contract. So he may want to sacrifice a year to gain so much more in the long run, but uh, He's not going to listen to a computer science professor. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wouldn't be the worst advice to listen to because, I mean, all the uncertainty, and you mentioned some of those, including could you even go to, could, would Europe even allow you to fly in to play in a European league? At this point, we don't even know that. Uh, the final question I have for you is very general, and I'll try to phrase this the best I can, but it does seem that, for example, when the article comes out last week with Dennis Dodd from CBS Sports, and he's using you as a source for it. There's inevitably pushback. Well, you know, we've seen models before. They're inaccurate. Or, ah, you know, he might be an expert, but psh, whatever. I've, I don't really trust experts. Why is there that pushback, do you think, whether it be for professors or experts in any given field from, you know, Joe Schmo on Twitter? Why, why do you think there is that natural pushback? And it seems to me to be even uh, at a higher frequency than before. Well, data tells a story but it doesn't always tell the complete story. And just like the data that we put out and Dennis reported, uh, it told a story. But, it, but there's so much more to the story. Uh, the story that hasn't been told yet that I try and communicate is once you bring people back into, onto the campus for in-person education, the risk is already there. Let them play football then. The real group that you have to be concerned about are the coaches, the staff. Uh, Lovey Smith, Illinois, you know, 62 years old, I believe. Oh, he's a person who potentially is at risk. Uh, Rod Smith, another person, mid-50s. Every team has coaches, head coaches, assistants, 
who are at much higher risk than the students. And we can see more deaths among them and hospitalizations than among the students. The other thing is, which is also not related in the, in the articles, is that how many deaths are occurring every year anyways in college football? And I, I have the data now, which shows that over the last 10 years in the FBS teams, there's been a little over four deaths per year, wow. ranging from accidents, health-related issues, uh, homicides and shootings, a handful of suicides. I mean, this, these are all unpleasant things to talk about. But the point being is that they're already, we're already tolerating four deaths per year. COVID-19 adds a new dimension of risk, but it's very small in addition to what we already have because the students are on campus. If the chancellors and the presidents of major universities saying, I want my students back in person, then there is no reason for the football team, the volleyball team, and the soccer team to stay on the sidelines. Let them play as well and use all the precautions you can so that you don't exaggerate their risk. So I'm actually of the belief that we should have college football. Now, you read my research and you don't, based on what's reported in the media, you assume that I'm against it. I'm actually not, because I'm looking more holistically and realizing that the marginal increase in deaths is not that great. And that if we've already tolerated deaths by other vectors, then this is yet another vector. Let's try and minimize it but we can't eliminate it. But every time a player uh, collapses in summer training, we then take precautions because of heat exhaustion to do something. A player is hit the wrong way and then they snap their, their neck and then they're paralyzed. And once again, we make changes to the rules. Well, we have rules now, creating bubbles, all the precautions you can, we're doing everything we can. We've already absorbed the risk by bringing them on campus with all the other students. Why don't we just play football too? Last question for you. Uh, I want to try to end on an optimistic note, and you were kind of doing it right there. And you, you were doing it right there, though. And as you look forward to a best-case scenario, what might that look like in terms of, you know, returning to normal, That that's a whole other thing, but returning to a place where people are not going to be fearful of that person down the aisle from them at the grocery store. What do you think that path forward might look like? We're all in this together, and it's important for everybody, no matter how their risk is, to view it that way. History tells us a very valuable lesson. In the 1917-18 Spanish influenza, the hardest hit group in terms of deaths were 20 to 40-year-olds. So older parents and grandparents who would get infected but basically be somewhat benign protected their children and their grandchildren, even though personally it had no impact on them. We now have a hundred years later, a complete reversal of that, that younger people can kill their parents and their grandparents. We have a path here and the path is not to run away from the risk of COVID-19 because it's going to be around after it's, it's no longer epidemic. It's probably going to be endemic. It's going to be with us for a while. And we have to learn to live with it. And if we simply, you know, close our doors every time something bad happens, we will never get to the other side of the rainbow. And the path is not particularly pleasant and it's a bit treacherous. We do have to wear masks. We do have to practice social distancing. We do have to protect the most vulnerable people. I believe anybody over 65, and depending on their health, it could be 70, um, just has to stay at home now. 
they, they really can't go out anymore. And this is going to be true for a few months. In our community, absolutely. If you're 70 years old and older, once the students return, you got to shelter in place. There is no other option. You're exposing yourself to a 30% risk of death if you get infected. That, that's not a risk that any of us should tolerate. Students, you know, one out of 1,000, one out of 1,200, that's a different kind of risk. Thing is, there is a path, but we can't run away from the threat. We have to embrace the fact that it is a threat and let's do what we can to work together for the common good. If we do that, you know, we're going to come out of this better than when we started because we're going to have a sense of unity and purpose that is so lacking in our country. So this is the way I see it. I like that. Professor Sheldon Jacobson, founder professor in computer science at the University of Illinois. I know that the Twitter account is at SHJ Analytics. Is there any other place that people could go to find your stuff? And I understand that there will be more uh, that you'll be adding to this college football study specifically. Yeah, the Twitter account is great because everything that comes out uh, ends up being tweeted by myself or other people. Okay, excellent. Sounds good. Professor, uh, Professor, sorry, Jacobson, thank you so much for your time. I, I appreciate all the information and it's... It's so beneficial, I think, to get the nuance behind uh, some of those headlines that we see, including the one that caught everyone's attention last week. But to get that information from an expert like yourself is very meaningful, and I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Professor Sheldon Jacobson, awesome stuff there. And, you know, it's interesting to see the approach that he was talking about at the end of that interview. And I don't claim to be, obviously, an expert, especially not in terms of the data like he is. But he is more of the mindset that, you know, this is a risk that isn't going anywhere, that you can, in fact, open up the schools. And if you do open up the schools, you may as well just play the games. So I do understand that. It certainly doesn't bode well for, let's say, my parents or that age demographic, especially in a college town like this, because when these students do come back, it is essentially shelter in place. That's not ideal. I would recommend you give him a follow, again, at SHJ Analytics, because that's not the last bit of research or data that we're going to be getting from him. And certainly that data is changing every day, every week. It isn't getting better, but fortunately, with the kinds of things that he can come up with, we might have a better idea about, okay, how many deaths are we looking at? How many hospitalizations? And for a college town like Champaign-Urbana, it is amazing the kinds of stuff that are being done right in our own backyard. So great stuff there from Professor Jacobson, again, at SHJ Analytics. All right, we're going to cut out of here for the week. So enjoy House of Pain. Elite Eight action in the basketball tournament. That's Friday afternoon. By the time you listen to this podcast, maybe that game will have already happened. But I'm hoping that next week we have more basketball tournament stuff to talk about. We're getting close to Major League Baseball and the NBA starting, we think, we hope. And then college sports, well, that's... <laughs> That's a whole other thing, and that story seems to be moving quicker than anything. So uh, for DP Doe, online at dpdoe.com, all the best deals and prices, dpdoe.com, and they deliver anywhere in Champaign-Urbana. Also, 4th and Kirby, online at 4thandkirby.com. Use coupon code 200LEVEL. And also remember that you buy two t-shirts, get one free. That's year-round at 4thandkirby.com. And finally, State Farm agent Brian Hansen, online at brianismyguy.com for life, auto, home, business, renters, you name it, brianismyguy.com. For Alana Inquirer, the Champagne Showers Podcast Network, have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday, Tuesday. We got an interview with Ryan Baker coming up at the start of next week, and we'll see what else we come up with as we go later into next week. But in the meantime, have a great weekend, and we'll see you soon. That is the 200 level. 